0: If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, open them to Romans chapter 10. You're going to need your Bible this morning. If you're new to New Branch, that's pretty much what we're about. Um, Everybody here knows that I have no wisdom in of myself, and that's certainly not what you need this morning is man's wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We need God to speak to us, and so we turn to his word. Let the word speak for itself. God's word is sufficient. We believe that what we hold in our hand is the very breath of God. The inspired Word of God, these are God's breath, and so they are sufficient for us. It's all we need. So this morning, we're in Romans chapter 10. We've been walking through our study of Romans, and this morning, we find ourselves in verses 5 through 13. We left off last time with verse 4, and uh, we're going to make it close to verse 13. We may not make it all the way, but follow along in your copy of scriptures as I read this passage. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the privilege it's been already this morning to gather together as your people and to sing praises to you, to worship you as our living hope And we pray now, Father, that you would speak to us from your word. We thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you that you saw fit to give us such a clear revelation of yourself and your ways and who you are and who your son is and who we are in light of that. And so, Father, this morning, speak to us from this passage Attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit so that we might understand, but not just to understand, to be smarter about this passage, but Lord, so that you might use the principles therein to change us, to transform us and make us look more like your son Jesus so that you might be glorified in us and through us. So we pray, Lord, that you would transform us into the likeness of your son Jesus this morning through your word. We pray that in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins this passage, verse 5, with the word for, which tells us that he's connecting what he's about to say with what he has already said. Last week, we covered the last four verses of chapter 9 and the first four verses of chapter 10, and and in that passage, we we saw a couple of primary concepts that Paul was trying to get across to us. The first is that there are two approaches to righteousness. We talked about righteousness as Paul had been alluding to righteousness and then talking about righteousness earlier in this chapter, had taken a hiatus from that in chapter 9 until we got to verse 30. And then he's hitting righteousness over and over and over again. We talked about how righteousness, loosely defined, is that which makes us good enough before God. Righteousness is that which we need if we are going to be made acceptable to God. And Paul was contrasting two approaches to obtaining that righteousness. The first that the unbelieving Israelites of Paul's day were exercising was to pursue righteousness by pursuing a law that in their hopes would lead to righteousness. And Paul talked about how that was a failure for both the unbelieving Israelites of his day, as well as for those of us today who pursue righteousness by pursuing it through a law. And the second way he described as those believing Gentiles were seeking to obtain righteousness, and that was by faith in Jesus. So two ways, two, two approaches to pursuing righteousness. One is by pursuing our own righteousness through the law, which is impossible, and the other, which is pursuing God's righteousness by faith in his son Jesus. The second concept that Paul got got across to us in that passage from last week is that because his righteousness can be obtained only by faith in his son Jesus Christ, then it is accessible then to everyone who believes in his son Jesus Christ. Not just to those who were given the law, but to everyone who believes. And as Paul now begins verse 5 with the word for, he's telling us that he's going to drive home both of those concepts more in the following passages. He's going to explain it more and apply it more, both of those passages in the following verses. So he says in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So again, he's contrasting those two approaches to righteousness, pursuing righteousness by a law and pursuing righteousness by faith in Christ. So we see this more clearly that he's contrasting these two things. If we look at the opening phrase of the next verse, verse 6, where Paul says, but the righteousness that is based on faith says something different. So he's contrasting those two pursuits of righteousness. There is a righteousness based on faith and a righteousness that is based on the law, or at least a pursuit of righteousness by pursuing a law. Now this passage, the bulk of it, we're gonna spend talking about righteousness by faith because that's what Paul spends the bulk of this passage addressing. But before we move on to that in verse six, here in verse five, Paul wants to say something absolutely definitive about the alternative approach that the unbelieving Israelites of his day were taking. That is pursuing righteousness, their own righteousness, by pursuing it through a law, by pursuing it through law keeping. So I want to give you three principles from this whole passage. And we find the first of them here in verse five. And that is that righteousness based on the law is a curse. Righteousness based on the law is a curse. Or I should say rather the pursuit of righteousness through the law is a curse. Because righteousness based on the law is a phantom. You can't have it, you can't achieve it or obtain it. Paul gives us this principle by quoting from Moses. He says, in verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness, righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, think about that phrase for a moment. What does that mean? That those that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What does that mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that those who follow the law will live forever eternally, as if salvation were by following the law. That would be completely antithetical to everything that Paul has written in Romans and elsewhere in all of his writings in the New Testament. He talks about how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not by following the law. Plus, if that were to be what Paul was saying here, then that would be saying something positive about the pursuit of righteousness by law-keeping. And remember, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing a contrast between this righteousness, pursuit of righteousness by following the law and contrasting that with the righteousness that is by faith. So we would not expect him to say something positive about righteousness through the law in verse 5. In fact, we would expect him to say something negative about it. And that's exactly what we find here in verse 5. Verse 5 amounts to a warning to Paul's readers then and now about the approach to pursuing righteousness by following a law. So what does that phrase mean then? The person who does the commandments shall live by them. Well, it's a quote out of the Old Testament. Paul is quoting here from the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus eighteen. Verse 5, and God says through Moses in that verse, you shall therefore keep my statutes and keep my rules. Then he says this, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, in the context of Leviticus 18, what was happening was that Moses was exhorting the Israelites that when they entered the promised land, that they needed to follow God's commands. When they got there, they need to do what God says. God was giving them commands about how they're to live in that time and in that place when they got there. And as long as they did that, they would would experience God's blessings. But if they didn't do that, if they didn't follow God's commands, they would experience God's curses. Now, why did God set it up that way? Why did God do that for them? Well, because God was preserving a people for himself through that time. He was preserving a people for himself through whom he would bring his son, who would one day die on a cross to redeem lost mankind back to himself by grace through faith. So Moses, in that setting, was not promising eternal life if they follow God's commands. He was, he was simply telling them that if you live by the law, then you will get what the law promises. But if you don't, you won't. So how does that principle amount to a warning for us in Romans chapter 10 verse 5 when he talks about this pursuit of righteousness through law-keeping being a curse. How is that a warning? Well, we've got to remember what Paul has already told us in the book of Romans. In chapter 3 verse 20, he said, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, So it's impossible to be justified, which that word means to be declared righteous. It's impossible for us to be declared righteous, to become righteous, to become good enough by following the law. And then he told us in verse 4 of chapter 10 that we looked at last week, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And again, when, he's, when he uses the word end there, he doesn't mean the end of existence. He means... The goal or the purpose, the end meaning the the aim of the law. Christ is the aim of the law, the goal, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, we can't be declared righteous by law keeping. In fact, that's not why the law was even given in the first place. The law was given to show us how far short we fall of following the law. And it points to Jesus as the only one who did. It points to him as the goal and the aim, the fulfillment of the law. So if you're trying to pursue righteousness by law keeping, which is what Paul means in verse 5 when he says the person who does the commandments, he's talking about the one who is pursuing righteousness through the commandment, through the law. If that's how you're pursuing righteousness, then Paul says, then you shall live by them. If you're you're going to pursue righteousness by them, then you're you're going to live by them. Or to put it another way, if you're going to pursue righteousness through law-keeping, then you shall be cursed to live with the consequences of basing your righteousness on law-keeping. That's helpful here, I think, to look at another passage of Scripture where Paul quotes from this very same verse out of Leviticus 18. And that is found in Galatians chapter 3. Let me read Galatians 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul quotes from the very, very same verse out of Leviticus 18. He says, For all who rely on works of the law, what is that? That's trying to earn righteousness by law-keeping. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified that is declared righteous before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Then look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather the one who does them shall live by them. The same verse there quoted from Leviticus 18. In other words, to pursue righteousness by law-keeping, or for us, trying to do the right thing, to pursue righteousness by trying to be a good Christian, to pursue righteousness by trying to perform a lot of religious acts and services, trying to do enough good to outweigh our bad, trying to pursue righteousness by our own efforts in any means whatsoever is a curse, It's a curse. Why? Because chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For Christ is the end of the law. He's the aim of the law. See, the aim of the law, the purpose of the law, is not for us to achieve our own righteousness through it, but to see that we can't and to trust in the one who did so that his righteousness might be made ours. That is the purpose of the law. Pursuing righteousness by following the law is a curse. It is a hopeless dead end. Last summer, my family and I went on a vacation to uh, Dauphin Island, Alabama. It's a barrier island off the coast of Mobile Bay. We've been there many times. Uh, But one day while we were there, we rented some kayaks. And on the bay side of Dauphin Island, there's this big marshland. And if you've ever seen kind of a a marshland, it's got all of these little inlets that are meandering all the way through the marshland. And so we got on our kayaks and we began exploring our way through the marshland. And before long, we realized how easy it would be to get lost in marshland, especially a place like like the Everglades. At least at Dauphin Island, we can look in the distance and see a reference point on dry land. But in the Everglades... It's marshland as far as you can see. Little inlets meandering for miles and miles and miles. And we would, we would kayak down one of these inlets and we would see a bend in the, the water. And we would think, well, just around that bend is going to be the way out of the marshland. It's going to open up into the bay. But we got around that bend and what did we see? We saw another bend going the other way. So we went around that bend, and then we saw another bend, and then another one, and then another one, and then eventually, there would be a dead end. We'd have to go around, go back the other way, and turn around, and go down another little inlet. And that would go around a bend, and then another bend, and another bend, and, and we keep running into dead ends, one after the other. And eventually, all ways would be Blocked. And with every dead end, it seemed more and more hopeless that we would ever find our way out of that marshland. Now, the good news is, obviously, we found our way out of that marshland. But you get the analogy. Pursuing righteousness by following the law is just like that. You obey a set of rules, and you see, like the Pharisees did, that I'm pretty good at obeying this set of rules. Then you realize there's another set of rules I'm not obeying. And so I focus on obeying those, that set of rules. And then you realize I'm not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I, I try really hard to obey the Lord, love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I realize that my very motives are wrong. And one after another, I realize that I'm not obeying the law at all. With every realization of failure to obey all of the law, I see that pursuing righteousness through the law seems more and more hopeless and just like a dead end. And that's exactly the point of the law. To show us that achieving righteousness through it is a hopeless dead end. It is gracious of God to use the law to show us this and to show us how far we fall short of what the law requires, which is perfect righteousness. So that in concluding that, in coming to that conclusion that pursuing our own righteousness through law keeping is hopelessly impossible, we might submit to the possibility of obtaining God's righteousness through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul turns his attention beginning in verse six. But before we move on, to verse 6. Let us be crystal clear here. Pursuing our own righteousness by following the law, by trying to be a good Christian, by trying to do enough good to outweigh our bad, by trying this and trying that, by trying to be more religious and sacrifice more. It's a hopeless dead end. It'll never, ever work. And so I want to encourage you if that describes you to stop trying. You cannot achieve righteousness which you must have if we we must have righteousness if we are to escape the judgment we deserve because of our sin against God. But we cannot earn that which we must have through law-keeping. It is a hopeless dead end. So that's bad news, right? But there is good news here. And the good news is that there is a righteousness that is based on faith. And we're in, we encounter it in verses 6 through 8. He says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we Proclaimed. So the first principle here is that righteousness based on the law is a curse. Pursuing righteousness through, the, through law-keeping is a curse. But righteousness based on faith is an accessible grace. It's an accessible grace. Again, Paul is contrasting these two approaches to pursuing righteousness. One is a curse. It's a hopeless dead end. But the other... Is an accessible grace, or it is a grace that is accessible. Now, why do I choose those words to describe what Paul is trying to teach us here? I use those words because when I say accessible grace, what I mean is that righteousness by faith has been made accessible by God, has been brought near to us by God. This is what we're going to see in this passage. And that it is gracious of God to have done so, to have brought that near to us. Verse six begins with, but the righteousness based on faith says, so it says something, and I think that's noteworthy, that the righteousness based on faith is living and active. It is personified as saying something. Righteousness based on the law is dead, but righteousness based on faith is alive, and it speaks, and it says something. So what does it say? It says in verse 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then Paul Paul provides an explanation here. He's preaching from the Old Testament expositionally. That is to bring Christ down. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is quoting here. And preaching here from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in that passage, Moses is telling the Israelites that the commands that God has given to them, they're not far off. They're not not hidden so that you have to search heaven and earth to find them so that you know what they say. But God has been gracious to bring them near. Listen to Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And so the point of Moses saying this to the Israelites is to communicate to them that God has been gracious to bring his commandments near to them. He's made it accessible to them. You don't have to search heaven and earth to find God's commands so that you would know what they say and know how to act. You don't have to search for them. God has been gracious to bring them near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart heart, he says. And because God has made it so accessible, now the Israelites can't wiggle out of their responsibility for obeying them by saying, well, we didn't have them and we don't know them. They did have them and did know them because God has brought them near to them. So they were without excuse. So the principle from Deuteronomy chapter 30 that we have to somehow import into Romans 10 is twofold. Number one, that God has made his commands and that story accessible to the Israelites. He's brought them near. And secondly, because of that, the Israelites are without excuse. They can't claim that they don't have them, and they can't claim that they don't know them because God has made them accessible and brought them near and put them on their heart and mind. Now, Paul takes that principle from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and overlays it to Romans chapter 10, and he says this. That principle, that twofold principle, is what righteousness by faith says. Now, how how does that work? Paul is not saying that the deeper meaning of Deuteronomy 30 is that what Moses is really talking about is righteousness by faith. I don't believe that at all. That's not not fundamentally what that passage is about. Paul is not introducing new meaning to the Deuteronomy text, but he's using a principle from Deuteronomy 30 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to help him explain righteousness by faith in Romans chapter 10. Now, Paul's use of the Old Testament is not arbitrary. It never is. And it's not in this case either. There's a rhyme to his reason. There's a connection here to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the connection for Paul was that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God was displaying his grace... By entering into and establishing a relationship with Israel by giving them the law, the giving of the law, and making it accessible to them. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul is explaining that God here also is likewise establishing, graciously establishing a relationship, again, reestablishing a relationship with his people through the gracious giving of the goal of the law who again is Jesus, Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end, the goal, the aim of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that's the connection. So with that in mind, with that principle overlaid over Romans 10, let's look at verses 6 through 8 again. He says, this righteousness based on faith says this. Hey, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then he explains what that means. That is to bring Christ down. In other words, we don't have to go up to heaven to try and find this righteousness of God. We don't have to ascend into heaven to find the fulfillment of the law. Because the fulfillment of the law has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, verse 7, this righteousness based on faith says, don't say who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, we don't have to go underground. We don't have to go into the netherworld to bring Christ back from the dead because he has already risen, proving that he is the Son of God and that he has defeated sin and death. So this righteousness that is based on faith, that Paul is contrasting with righteousness based on the law, affirms two things. First of all, it affirms that Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfillment of the law has already come. He's already come. And that in his life and in his death, he has provided both the requirement for our righteousness as well as the requirement for sacrifice to pay our debt for sin. The second thing that righteousness by faith affirms is that Jesus rose from the dead proving that he is the son of God And proving that he had defeated sin and death for all time for those who trust in him. And so, righteousness based on faith doesn't need to go look for the Christ, doesn't need to go look for the Messiah, doesn't need to go look for a fulfillment of the law, doesn't need to go look for a righteousness the righteousness of God, because God has already provided his righteousness through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. He's brought it near. That's what he says in verse 8. But what does it say? What does this righteousness based on faith say? It says this, also a quote from Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is, as Paul explains, the word of faith that we proclaim. The word, as Paul references it there in verse 8, is a reference to the gospel, the word, the, the, the message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. This, this word, this, this message, this good news has been brought near. How near has it been brought? So near that one must only respond to it in faith in order to obtain That righteousness. And that's where we're led into the familiar verses, verses 9 and 10. But verses 9 and 10, these are are very familiar, often quoted from very popular verses. But they really aren't even the main point of this passage. Paul's main point here in this passage is that the righteousness of God has been brought near that God has graciously brought near this word, this message about the righteousness of God being available through faith. But in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us an example now of how near they have been brought, how accessible they are. It, it is to us. And it is this accessible. Look at verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul is explaining in these two verses how the righteousness of God is mediated in our lives. How the righteousness of Jesus Because of his perfect living, his righteousness, how it becomes our righteousness. How an alien righteousness becomes our own. That's what he's talking about here. Romans 9 and 10 tell us how this happened. Now he's been telling us all throughout this letter, specifically from chapter 3 onward, that the righteousness of God is only available to us by faith in Jesus Christ. But but these two verses tell us more about how that happens and what our response to the gospel must be. And he says it includes confessing and believing. He says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. You'll be justified. That means Declared righteous because now you have the righteousness of God. Church, make no mistake about it. This right here is our responsibility. In chapters 8 and 9, we've been talking a lot about and camping out a lot in those chapters about God's sovereignty in salvation. And, that, and, and what we're going talk to talk about this morning with respect to our responsibility in salvation doesn't change that a bit. God is completely sovereign in salvation. He's completely sovereign in all that we talked about his predestination, his election, and his sovereignty in those matters is not conditional on anything outside of himself. His sovereign election of some to be saved is neither conditioned on or regulated by man's faith or man's actions or man's behavior in any way. God is completely sovereign in salvation. But we can't just skip over Romans 10 and 9 and 10. We still have a responsibility. And our responsibility doesn't negate at all God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty over salvation doesn't negate our need to respond to the gospel. We must respond to the gospel. This word of faith, as Paul calls it, that has been brought near. Listen, those who never confess that Jesus is Lord and never believe in his resurrection are not saved and consequently are not part of the elect and conversely those who do confess that Jesus is Lord and those who do believe in in their heart that God raised him from the dead they are saved and also consequently they are necessarily part of the elect Only the elect will confess Jesus as Lord, and all of the elect will confess Jesus as Lord. So how does that happen? That's what Paul is telling us here. So what what does it mean, first of all, to confess Jesus as Lord? The word confess means to agree with. And the word Lord simply is a reference to God or sovereign. And so to confess Jesus as Lord is to agree that Jesus is God and that he is sovereign over everything, including myself. What about the phrase, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? What what does that mean? Well, as we've said before, believe is not a word that in the Greek means something that we do with our mind. The word believe is simply the verb form of the Greek noun for faith. So it's faithing. It's believing is the verb form of that noun. Believing is faithing. And so this phrase, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, means to place your faith in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection as sufficient payment for your debt because of your sin. Now, when Paul talks about these two things, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, he's not talking about two separate things. As if this is some kind of progression of multiple steps that we must walk through in order to be saved. He's talking here about a single response to the gospel. One that includes both confession and belief as an expression of our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord. Now, Paul gives us here three aspects of confessing and believing that must be be present in order for them to represent saving faith. And the first is that they must be public. They must be public. Paul says, confess Jesus as Lord, but you must do this with your mouth. Not just in your head, not just with your mind. He says, for a reason, it was no accident that he he put it this way. We must confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth. In other words, audibly, publicly, not privately. I've heard some folks say, you know, I'm I'm a Christian, but I like to keep that private. But I want to say, but the word doesn't. The Bible doesn't. The Bible knows nothing about a secret believer. There's no such thing. If you think you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, but you've never confessed him with your mouth as Lord, I mean, never, not even your Sunday school teacher or your parent or your pastor or anyone, then I believe that you have reason to question whether or not your belief in Jesus is saving faith because you've never confessed in him as your Lord with your mouth. Maybe that's something that you need to do this morning. Confess Jesus Christ to be Lord. Note this, that there is no salvation apart from a public confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. But it, also, it must also be genuine, not just public, but it, it needs to be genuine. That's the second aspect of confessing and believing that Paul talks about here. He says, he says it must be from the heart, both our belief in Jesus and his life of righteousness, his death in our place, and his resurrection from the grave, as well as our confession of him as Lord, must be genuine. It must be authentic and real. We can't just go through the motions here. It's not about just saying the words of a sinner's prayer as if they were magic words. And as long as I say those magic words, then God will save me and I'll get his righteousness and I'll be forgiven. We must mean this from our heart. We must believe this. The confession of our mouth must represent the genuine desire of our heart. Now, How do we know that? How do we know if... Our belief in Jesus and our confession of him as Lord years ago was genuine. One of the best ways to know that, to know that our belief in Jesus was genuine, that our confession of him years ago as Lord was genuine, is if I'm still believing in him today. If I'm still confessing him as Lord today. You see, this confessing and believing that Paul is talking about in verses 9 and 10, it is, first and foremost, primarily an initial confessing and believing by which we are given the righteousness of God and declared justified, declared righteous before God because we're clothed with his righteousness now by faith in him. It is an initial confessing and believing, but if it's real, it'll be continuing believing and confessing. See, if you have believed in Jesus and confessed in him as Lord at some point in your life, are you still... Or have you fallen away? If you genuinely confessed him as your Lord, if you genuine, genuinely believed in him as your Savior, then you'll not stop believing in him. And you'll not cease confessing him to be your Lord. The third aspect of believing and confessing that Paul talks about here is that it must be all-encompassing. You see, to confess Jesus as Lord means so much more than just intellectually affirming that he is God. In reality, it means affirming that he's my God. And if I'm going to affirm that he is my God, and my Lord, and my sovereign, then what Paul is calling for here is nothing less than an all-encompassing surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It means turning over the reins of my life to Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to do that, then I must reject myself as the ruler of my life and turn to Jesus as the ruler of my life. It means I don't call the shots anymore. He does. I don't make the decisions anymore. He does. It means my life is no longer lived for my glory, but for his glory. It means that my greatest... Delight, my, my greatest joy, my greatest treasure in life is nothing in this life but him alone. Now, someone who is just coming to faith in Jesus Christ, a baby believer, just, just came to faith in Jesus Christ, he or she is not going to be able to do those things. Not fully at least, not yet. Not going to be able to do all of those things. Not initially. That's why we need to be, need to be discipled. That's why the Great Commission doesn't say go and make converts. It says go and make disciples. We must grow in our knowledge of what it means to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That, if, so we're not talking here about, about needing to, to fully know and be fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in order for that to be saving faith. If that's what we're saying, then that's works-based salvation. Me needing to prove my allegiance to God in order for me to receive the righteousness that I need to make me saved. That would be works-based salvation, and that is categorically unbiblical. But so is thinking that I can believe in Jesus Christ without also making him my Lord. That's what Paul says here. Now, in the late 20th century, there was a movement within evangelical Christianity that said just that. It's largely died out, but you still hear and see vestiges of that theology even today. That group, which included at the time many notable and very respected theologians, taught what they would call free grace theology. Now, don't get tripped up by that terminology I believe and we affirm as a church that salvation is by grace alone, not by works. We can't earn it. Salvation is by grace alone. But what this group was saying, this movement was suggesting, was that things like repentance and confessing Jesus as Lord, that those were secondary works. And so in an effort to safeguard Salvation by grace alone, which is an admirable, admirable motive, right? We, we want to safeguard guard that. But in an effort to safeguard salvation by grace, what this movement said is that essentially you could come to faith in Jesus, but not have, have him as your Lord. So you could accept Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily come to him as Lord. And you could come to him as Lord later in your life as you matured and as you grew in your faith. But conceivably, if you never did accept Jesus as Lord, well, at least you had him as Savior. And if you died before you accepted him as Lord, well, you're still saved and you still get to go to heaven. And I hope we see that Romans 10, 9, and 10 and a myriad of other verses in Scripture tell us that that is unequivocally Bad theology that is categorically unbiblical and I would say harmful to the gospel. Nowhere in scripture do we find evidence of or an argument for a believer who has come to faith in Jesus as Savior but not in Jesus as Lord. Saving faith is a faith that turns from sin and self-rule and turns to Christ and his rule over us. Now, we're going to grow and mature in our faith, and we're going to grow in, our, in, in sanctification and our understanding of what it means to surrender. I don't do this perfectly. I'm still growing in my understanding of what it means daily to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But Scripture knows nothing about coming to faith in Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. We come to his, Him as Lord, and we don't, or we don't come to Him in fa- saving faith at all. Saving faith is a faith that turns from sin and self-rule and turns to Jesus Christ and his rule over our lives. Saving faith is a faith that publicly and genuinely confesses that he is our Lord and believes him to be our savior, to be the forgiver of our sins, the, the rescuer of our souls through his death and resurrection. And Paul says... Back to this passage, Paul says that, that is how near the righteousness that is based on faith has been brought by the Lord. It has come to us by God's grace in the form of a message, a word that has brought, been brought near, that is in your mouth, that's in your heart, this word, this message being the gospel. It is so near That a response of faith in Jesus Christ mediates this righteousness of God to be our very own. So that we are declared righteous and justified before a holy God. And this is the message that truly levels the playing field for all peoples. As Paul says, between Jew and and Greek, between Jew and Gentile. And this was what, what leads to verses 11 through 13. He says, for the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Same quote from Isaiah 28, as he listed in the last verse of chapter 9. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches, that is his salvation, on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's a lot more in those three verses that, than we have time to cover in our time this morning. So, let us, let us just end with this final principle. The first principle is the pursuit of righteousness through the law is a curse. It's a hopeless dead end. Second principle The righteousness based on faith is an accessible grace. So accessible, so near, that it is mediated simply by faith in Jesus Christ. But the third principle is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so fundamentally, have you? Have you called on the name of the Lord? to save you, to rescue you from what we all deserve because of our rebellion against him. Have you called on the name of the Lord? What is his name? Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the promised Messiah. As Peter said in Acts chapter four, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Some of you need to come to faith in Jesus this morning. Maybe you you believe in Jesus, but you have never called on him to save you. You never asked him to forgive you of your sin debt. You've never trusted in his death and resurrection as your only hope to rescue you from what you deserve. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord. Listen, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then something else is. And whatever that else is, whatever else is Lord of your life, it doesn't deserve to be. There's only one Lord in heaven and on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Lord. And if you haven't yet placed your faith in him and confessed him as Lord, then this morning you need to repent of having a Lord other than him and confessing Jesus to be Lord. If you need to call on the Lord Jesus to save you this morning, if you need to confess Jesus as Lord, and I want you to do that as we close in prayer in just a moment. But before we do, if you're here this morning and you have, you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you are a follower of Jesus Christ then I would submit to you that this morning, through this passage, is a good opportunity for all of us to evaluate our current confession of Jesus as Lord. See, it's one thing for us to confess Jesus as Lord here on Sunday morning, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. It's another thing to confess Jesus as Lord out there in the workplace and in the marketplace. Ours is a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. Increasingly, there is more and more a higher price to pay for following Christ. He said there would be, and more and more there is. But those who genuinely confess Jesus as Lord will be willing and will be able, by the grace of God, to pay that price, to confess Jesus as Lord no matter the circumstance. So, brothers and sisters, Be ready to confess Jesus as Lord. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready and prepared to do this. And be encouraged in those efforts that he is Lord. Remember how the Apostle Paul encouraged the church at Philippi when he was telling them to go and live as lights in the world. He said this, and I'll close with Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me?